Greetings, Embers, and welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. I'd like to thank the reformed members of the channel. Tina Mead, Seven, Luz Crispin, Tammy Slayton, CAG, Denise S., Through Scrutiny, Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Norman D.W., Chris Helia, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's Niece. If you would like to learn how to become a member or would like to buy me a coffee as a special thank you, those links can be found down below. Also, if you are new here and like what you are hearing, or you have been here and not done so already, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help the channel out, but it reminds you of every time I upload a video. With that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snacks, or tuck in to get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Crime Cases, Volume 7. Right after this intro, an ad will play. I'll read the first case an ad will play, and after that, there will be no more ads within this video. Disclaimer. Some of these cases contain material that will be very sensitive to some. As of right now, a heavy listing discretion is strongly advised. Andres Martina behind bars for the sledgehammer murder of his 12-year-old grandson, Andre Smith. Andres Martina is behind bars for murdering his 12-year-old grandson, Andre Smith, inside his home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In May 2021, Martina, then 53, moved back to Milwaukee from India and wanted to reconnect with his grandson, Andre, and his 8-year-old brother. On August 28, 2021, they spent the night at his house near 46th in Glendale, and he had planned to take them shopping for school supplies. The following morning at around 3 a.m., Martina said he noticed his wallet was open and money was missing. He automatically assumed it was Andre because of his alleged problem with stealing. When he confronted Andre in the living room area, he said he smacked him repeatedly because he didn't know what else to do to get his grandson to give him his money back. According to the complaint, Andre ran to the bathroom and locked himself inside in an attempt to protect himself from his grandfather. After Martina picked the lock open, he lost it on Andre. The commotion awakened Martina's disabled mother, who watched on as he attacked Andre and his brother. Investigators state that the attack lasted more than five hours and that Martina used multiple objects to beat Andre, including a mallet, a coat rack, and a cane. Martina later sent a text message to Andre's grandmother and told her that he had stolen from him. When she asked about his whereabouts, his only reply was that he was bleeding, according to TMJ4. That's when she informed Andre's mother to go to Martina's house to find out what was going on. When she and her boyfriend arrived, they found Andre unconscious. Her other son was suffering from a head laceration, a fractured finger, and bruising. They transported the boys to an area hospital where Andre was pronounced dead about 45 minutes later. According to the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office, Andre died from a severe skull fracture. During a search of Martina's home, they found marijuana, methamphetamine pills, and a firearm. Martina was arrested and booked into the county jail, where he was held on a $750,000 cash bond. He was charged with five felony counts, including first-degree intentional homicide, child abuse, and possession of a firearm by a felon. During an interview with detectives, Martina mentioned that he had served time in prison for murdering a boy in 1989. He also stated that he was well aware of what he was doing when he beat his own grandson. He added that he recalled telling his grandchildren, quote, if you lie, if you mess up in school, if you steal, I'm going to kill you. During Martina's first court appearance, his daughter, who was Andre's mother, spoke. 
She told the court commissioner that my dad hurt me my whole life. I loved him because he was my dad. I was going to give you another chance, man. She then turned to her father, Martina, and said, I warned you. I begged you to stay away from the kids. I will never ever forgive you or mom for what you did to my baby. Andre didn't deserve what you did to him. I hope wherever you go, they do to you what you did to my baby. I hate you. Martina later tried to use self-defense. He testified that Andre pulled a gun on him when he grabbed the gun from him, he said. He swung into the wall, hit his head on the wall, and that's the only thing I remember. Prosecutor stated that Andre's injuries were too extensive for Martina to claim self-defense. In September 2021, Martina pleaded not guilty to the charges. Martina later apologized in court. He said, I'm profoundly sorry that I wasn't able to control my panic and anxiety. In May 2022, Martina was found guilty of first-degree intentional homicide and attacking Andre's younger brother. Milwaukee County Judge Stephanie Rothstein said, This is the most, no, one of the most, I wished I could say the most, one of the most aggravated homicides that I've dealt with, and I've been in this area of practice for almost 38 years. The following month, Martina was sentenced to two life sentences with an additional 23 years in prison. His defense team said he is planning to appeal his conviction. Travion Shaquille Ross behind bars for the gas station attack that led to the death of David Ray Young. Travion Shaquille Ross is behind bars for the gas station attack in Houston, Texas, that led to the death of David Ray Young. In 2020, Ross was in his recently purchased 2010 blue Mitsubishi Lancer when he pulled out of the gas station in the 400 block of FM 1960. It was during that time that he collided with Young's vehicle a 2011 Black Lincoln MKZ XXX, according to the Harris County District Attorney's Office. Surveillance footage captured Young exiting his vehicle to exchange information with Ross in the parking lot. That's when Ross punched him in the face, which caused him to fall to the ground. Officials stated that as Young laid unconscious, Ross repeatedly stomped and kicked him. Police officers from the Harris County Sheriff's Office arrived on the scene and Young was transported to an area hospital by ambulance. The beating left Young paralyzed from the neck down and he was confined to a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. His elderly mother cared for him for two years until his death on November 28, 2022. Young died of complications due to his injuries. He was only 56 years old. Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg said, This was an unnecessary and unreasonable response to a small disagreement. The victim's family has suffered the loss of a loving father and son. While we have achieved justice, the family will never see their loved one again. Ross was arrested and later convicted of murder. In August 2023, he was sentenced to 58 years in prison. Assistant District Attorney Maroon Kutani stated that Ross and Young did not know each other. He went on to say that the defendant's short temper and history of assaulting others threatened our community. It's clear that he tends to use his hands as a weapon. We believe the jury made the right decision in giving an appropriate sentence to ensure the safety of our community. Ross must complete half of his sentence before becoming eligible for parole. Brian Rodriguez Segala behind bars for murdering 
Javier Rodriguez Ramirez after he reportedly refused to confess his sins. Brian Rodriguez Sagala is behind bars for murdering Javier Rodriguez Ramirez inside his home in Sparks, Nevada, after he reportedly refused to confess his sins. On the evening of March 26, 2021, officers with the Sparks Police Department were dispatched to an apartment in the 1400 block of Sullivan Lane after receiving a 911 call about unknown trouble. When they arrived, they found Rodriguez Ramirez, 67, inside his apartment. He had been shot twice, one in the wrist and once in the chest, which pierced his heart, according to My News 4. Rodriguez Ramirez was pronounced dead at the scene, and the Wasso County Regional Medical Examiner's Office ruled his death a homicide. Police officials learned through an investigation that the night before the shooting, Rodriguez Ramirez had several guests at his home, including Rodriguez Sagala, who was 19 years old at the time. At some point, an argument broke out, and witnesses reported hearing gunshots before they saw Rodriguez Sagala running from the apartment. The following day, officers found Rodriguez Sagala near the scene, and they took him in for questioning. Rodriguez Sagala told detectives that he and the victim got into an argument about Rodriguez Ramirez began making unwanted sexual advances toward him. He told Rodriguez Ramirez that what he was doing was a sin. Then he asked him to confess to the sins he committed, and when he refused, he shot him. Officers arrested Rodriguez Sagala and booked him into the Washoe County Jail for open murder and carrying a concealed firearm. Fox 11 reported that during a six-day trial, the prosecutor highlighted the calculated nature of the defendant's conduct and explaining how Rodriguez Sagala repeatedly told investigators that Rodriguez Ramirez deserved it. In May 2023, the Washoe County District Attorney's Office announced that the jury found Rodriguez Sagala guilty of first-degree murder with the use of a deadly weapon and carrying a concealed weapon. That same year, in August, Rodriguez Sagala was sentenced to 70 years in prison. He will be eligible for parole after serving 28 years. Corita Beavers behind bars for the murder of her boyfriend, Tivel Parker. Corita Beavers is behind bars for murdering her boyfriend, Tivel Parker, of nearly three years during an argument outside their home in Summit County, Ohio. On the morning of January 9, 2016, Beavers and her boyfriend, along with two others, left their home in Akron and walked to the corner store to purchase beer. On their way home, Beavers and Parker, who allegedly had a volatile relationship, got into a heated argument, according to WYMT. The people they were walking with had gone ahead of them. When they reached an area near Weehawken Place and Dahlgren Drive, police officials believed that Beavers told Parker she was going to kill him before she pulled out a gun and opened fire. She shot at him three times, but one of the bullets struck him in the chin and traveled to his brain. Witnesses reported seeing someone driving a gray car down the street after hearing gunshots. When first responders arrived at the scene, they found Parker laying on the sidewalk with a 22 caliber handgun beneath him. A firearms analysis from the Bureau of Criminal Investigation later confirmed that it was the same gun used to shoot Parker. Paramedics transported Parker to Akron City Hospital, where the 22-year-old succumbed to his injuries the following day, January 10, 2016. Police officials stated that when Parker's relatives learned of the shooting, one of them attacked Beavers. She sustained injuries and was taken to the hospital. It was there that investigators ascertained that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.338, 
more than four times the legal limit in the state of Ohio. When she was released from the hospital, detectives questioned her for three hours, during which time she maintained her innocence. Beaver's attorney argued that she did not kill Parker and that it was a possibility he committed suicide, but the medical examiner's office had ruled his death a homicide. He also claimed that the shooter could have been one of the occupants in the gray car. Despite his efforts, law enforcement officers arrested Beavers on the charges of one count of murder, felony murder, and felonous assault. She was booked into the Summit County Jail. During the trial, Beavers' attorney called the investigation botched because he said the police found no gun residue on Beaver's hands or clothes, nor her DNA on the gun that shot Parker. Corita Beavers was scientifically excluded from committing this crime. At the end of this trial, I am firmly convinced we will all be asking ourselves why we were here in the first place, said Beaver's attorney. Prosecutors contending that Beavers being the shooter was the most logical explanation as she was the only person with Parker at the time of the shooting. On November 23, 2016, a Summit County jury deliberated for two days before they found Beavers guilty of second-degree murder with a firearm specification and felonious assault with a firearm specification. The following month, Beavers was sentenced to life in prison. I am pleased my office was able to secure justice for this victim and his family, the judge said in a statement. I will continue to aggressively prosecute gun violence in our community. Beavers will be eligible for parole after serving 18 years. In June 2018, Beavers filed an appeal, but the Summit County Court of Common Pleas upheld her conviction. Christopher Vaughn behind bars for the roadside murders of his wife, Kimberly, and their three children. Christopher Vaughn is behind bars for murdering his wife, Kimberly, and their three children, Abigail, Cassandra, and Blake, inside their sports utility vehicle in Will County, Illinois. On June 14, 2007, law enforcement officers were dispatched to a service road near Interstate Highway 55, in Chanahan Township, about 40 miles southwest of Chicago. When they arrived on the scene, they found Kimberly, 34, dead inside the family's red Ford Expedition. Her body was in the passenger seat, and she had been shot twice in the head. Authorities also found her children, Abigail, 12, Cassandra, 11, and Blake, 8, dead in the back seat. Each child had been shot twice. Christopher sustained superficial gunshot wounds to his leg and arm, and he was transported to the St. Joseph Medical Center in Joliet, where detectives met with him for questioning. He told detectives that he and his family, originally from Missouri, left their home in Oswego before dawn. They were on their way to a water park in Springfield. It was supposed to be a surprise trip, but they never made it. Christopher, a then 32-year-old computer security consultant, pulled the vehicle over when his wife said she was feeling sick. According to the Chicago Tribune, when they were on the side of the road, Christopher got out of the vehicle with the intention of fixing the luggage rack, but when he noticed the blood on his leg, he panicked. Christopher limped away from the SUV, flagged down a passing motorist for help. When Christopher learned he was suffering from multiple gunshot wounds, he claimed to have had no memory of how it occurred, nor did he remember hearing any gunshots. He later asked if authorities had informed his wife about the shooting. At the scene, detectives found a 9mm semi-automatic handgun belonging to Christopher. He bought it in Washington State, where he and his family lived just before moving to Illinois in May 2006. When Christopher was discharged from the hospital, 
he went to the Illinois State Police District 5 offices, where detectives questioned him further. He was not considered a suspect in the case. Therefore, when the interrogation was over, he left on his own free will, police said. Christopher later became their prime suspect when they interviewed multiple witnesses and ascertained incriminating evidence on his computer and phone records. Evidence at the scene also suggested that Christopher was the shooter. Investigators said they used DNA analysis to examine blood splatter patterns and have also looked at bullet trajectories and gunpowder residue. An investigation led police officials to believe that Christopher put the gun under Kimberly's chin and shot her. He then fatally shot Abigail and Cassandra when they were sleeping. It was reported that he shot Blake as he was raising his hand in an effort to protect himself from the bullet. On June 23rd of that same year, officers arrested Christopher at a funeral home in St. Charles, Missouri, just hours before the memorial service for Kimberly and her children began. Christopher was initially held at the St. Charles Detention Center, where he was isolated from the other inmates until he was extradited to Illinois. When he arrived in Illinois, Christopher was booked into the Will County Jail, where he was held without bond and placed on suicide watch. He was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, two for each person he killed. The dispatch reported that the following month, Christopher was indicted on four counts of first-degree murder. Four of the eight first-degree murder counts were dropped. In July 2007, he pleaded not guilty to the charges. During a hearing in September 2007, Christopher learned that prosecutors would pursue the death penalty if he were to be found guilty. He apparently showed no emotion after hearing the announcement. During the trial, which lasted nearly six weeks, Christopher's defense team said he was innocent of the crimes and that Kimberly was the shooter. A private investigator stated that when Christopher remembered what happened, he said Kimberly shot and killed their children before turning the gun on herself. Christopher articulated that he was standing outside the car when he heard gunshots. When he re-entered the vehicle, Kimberly shot him twice, then told him, you killed the kids, before fatally shooting herself. According to his defense team, Kimberly had became unstable from a shifting blend of medications, including some linking to increase in violent or suicidal behavior. Prosecutors contended that Christopher was the shooter. They stated that after he pulled the SUV over, he exited the vehicle, retrieved his gun from the rack on the roof, and put it in his jacket. After getting back in the car, he shot and killed his wife and children. It is their belief that Christopher murdered his family so that he could escape to Canada and live in the wilderness. In September 2012, a Will County jury deliberated for less than an hour before finding Christopher guilty of fatally shooting his family. In a statement, Will County's state's attorney said, in the successful prosecution of Christopher Vaughn, we called 90 witnesses to the stand in our case in chief, and the jury returned a guilty verdict in 60 minutes. That same year, in November, Christopher was sentenced to four consecutive life terms with no chance of parole. Christopher's attorneys are reportedly still trying to prove his innocence. Vernon Castle Clark behind bars for the fatal tire iron attack on friend Jose Lopez Perezum during argument. Vernon Castle Clark is behind bars for killing his friend Jose Lopez Perez with a tire iron during an argument that occurred at his home in Donna Anna County, New Mexico. At around 9 p.m. on February 23, 2016, Law enforcement officers were dispatched to a home 
in the 2100 block of Rocaseca, which is just outside the Las Cruces city limit, after receiving a 911 call about a woman screaming for help. When they arrived on the scene, they found Lopez Perez, 33, dead outside with a tire iron lodged in his head, according to the Albuquerque Journal. Following an investigation, police officials concluded that Lopez Perez got into an argument with Clark inside his house. When Clark left, he slammed the door behind, which was a no-no in that house, said the defense attorney. Lopez Perez, 33, followed behind him, and the argument continued outside. It was during that time that Clark retrieved a tire iron and threw it at Lopez Perez, as his mother watched on. The victim's mother stated that he, Clark, had that iron thing in his hand. He lifted it up and even lifted his foot, and then he struck my son. My son fell, and I was not able to do anything. My son fell face down with his hands behind him, and I went running outside, and I saw from his back, and I saw that thing had been stabbed into his head. Clark reportedly fled the scene before police arrived. He was later arrested and booked into the Donna Anna County Detention Center, where he was held without bond. He was charged with second-degree murder. During an interrogation, Clark told detectives that he didn't mean to kill his friend and that he only threw the tire iron to scare him. To me, it was an accident, almost he said. We got into a confrontation. I was pursued, and during the pursuit and altercation, I was assaulted as well. I really was assaulted as well, but defended myself. Clark's defense attorney, who claimed that incident was the result of his drug addiction and mental illness, recommended a four-year sentence. He also described the throwing of the tire iron as a one-in-a-million shot and unfortunately, it caused the death of Mr. Perez. In September 2017, Clark took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Following an hour-long hearing, the judge sentenced Clark to 14 years in prison and 18 months of supervised probation. He received credit for the 19 months he had already been incarcerated. Chadwick Banks executed for the murders of his wife, Cassandra Banks, and her 10-year-old daughter, Melanie Cooper. Chadwick Banks was put to death for the murders of his wife, Cassandra Banks, and his 10-year-old stepdaughter, Melody Cooper whose bodies were found inside their home in Gadsden County, Florida. In 1991, Cassandra met Chadwick through her uncle, who worked with him at the Fiberstone Quarries, where they built doors and fireplace frames. About a year later, on July 27, 1992, they were married. It was Cassandra's second marriage and Chadwick's first. They lived together in a two-bedroom mobile home in Quincy, about 20 miles west of Tallahassee, with Cassandra's daughter. Melody was a fifth-grade student at George W. Monroe Elementary School, and she wasn't too fond of Chadwick, which is why she didn't want to go to their wedding, according to the Tallahassee Democrat. It was reported that relatives thought Melody was jealous of the new man in her mother's life, but they uncovered that there was another explanation for her abhorrence for Chadwick. Several of Melody's friends told detectives that she told them that her stepdaddy was messing with her in a sexual way, and she told them to remain tight-lipped about it. They obliged, but they broke their promise after she was murdered. On the morning of September 24, 1992, Melody and her mother were found dead inside their home. Cassandra, who had turned 30 five days earlier, was still in her bed, and her daughter was found on her knees slumped over her bed. Melody was naked from the waist down. The following day, Chadwick confessed to the murders after he was arrested at his job. 
He was booked into the Gadsden County Jail on charges of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of sexual battery on a child under 12. Chadwick was already on probation for two aggravated assault charges. An investigation revealed that the night before the murders, Cassandra went to Dutt's place, where Chadwick, who was 21 years old at the time, was playing pool. Shortly before 2 a.m. on September 24, 1992, witnesses saw them arguing outside of the pool hall. Cassandra headed home shortly thereafter, and within an hour, Chadwick followed suit. When he arrived, authorities said he went into the bedroom where his wife was sleeping and shot her in the head with a 32 caliber revolver. He then went to Melody's bedroom and sexually assaulted her before shooting her in the head. The St. Lucie News Tribune reported that Chadwick told detectives that he spanked Melody and molested her for 20 minutes, but she didn't resist or try to get away. It turned out, however, that the assault was far more violent than he described. Melody was sodomized and had Chadwick's blood under her fingernails as well as her pillows. She sustained bruising and a cut on her face during the assault. Chadwick's DNA was also found inside Melody. Expert testified that Melody was shot at the top of her skull, which indicated to them that after the assault, he pulled her head back and opened fire. After the murders, Chadwick went to a relative's house where he hid the gun and slept for several hours before heading into work. An officer with the Quincy Police Department stated in 1992 that it was one of those gruesome things that happened in the community that had everyone in shock. It was a small town and a huge case. They just couldn't believe such a thing could happen in a small town. Chadwick pleaded no contest to the crimes, and he claimed that he was drunk at the time. During the trial, the court stated that Chadwick bought between 5 and 7 16-ounce malt liquors while he was at the bar within 5 to 6 hours before the murders occurred. Prosecutors stated that drunkenness was not recognized by law as a mitigating factor, and they also noted that Chadwick was able to drive home and let himself inside. In 1994, a Gadsden County jury found Chadwick guilty and recommended the death penalty. The judge approved and later sentenced him to death. Chadwick made two attempts to appeal his sentence, but they were denied by the Florida Supreme Court. The court then called the murders of Cassandra and Melody heinous, atrocious, and cruel, which they said was enough to warrant death. Several weeks before Chadwick was put to death, his attorney submitted a stay of execution, claiming that his post-conviction counsel did not have the resources, staff, or experience to take on capital litigation. The stay of execution was denied. Chadwick apologized to the victims' families for hurting and disappointing them for many years. He said, year after year, I have tried to come up with a reasonable answer to my actions. But how could such acts be reasonable? On the morning of his execution, November 13, 2014, Chadwick ordered his last meal, fried fish, hush puppies, french fries with banana pudding, red velvet cake, and butter pecan ice cream as his dessert. He also requested ice water. At 7.27 p.m., Chadwick was pronounced dead after being executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison in Stark. He was 43 years old. Again, I'd try my best to keep my opinions out of these cases, but fuck this guy. What he did to that little girl is completely uncalled for, and his last meal, they should have fed him his own shit. Fuck him. All right, I'm off my soapbox. I apologize. Let's continue. Jerry Lynn Burns behind bars for the cold case murder of 18-year-old Michelle Martinko. Jerry Lynn Burns is behind bars for the murder of Michelle Martinko, 
whose body was found inside a vehicle that was parked behind a mall in southwest Cedar Rapids, Iowa. On December 19, 1979, Martinko, who was an 18-year-old senior at John F. Kennedy High School, used her parents' vehicle, a 10 1972 Buick, to attend a school event at the Sheraton Inn, according to the Des Moines Tribute. She later called them and said she was going to go to the Westdale Mall to pick up a coat that had been put away on layaway. She was going to head home afterwards, but she never arrived. Her friends said they last saw her at the shopping mall at around 8 p.m., and they had no idea what happened to her after that. One witness claimed to have seen her shopping in a jewelry store. At around 2 a.m. on December 20, 1979, Martinko's parents called the Cedar Rapids Police Department and reported her missing, which prompted a search by law enforcement. Two hours later, Martinko was found dead. When a police officer went to the shopping mall, he spotted Martinko's family vehicle parked behind J.C. Penney. Upon looking inside, he found Martinko's body in the passenger seat. According to the pathologist's testimony, Martinko was stabbed 29 times in the face and chest, but the fatal wound was to her sternum, which penetrated her aorta, and she bled to death. Martinko also had defensive wounds on her hands. A preliminary investigation showed that Martinko died at around 9 p.m. the previous night. After searching the vehicle, investigators realized that Martinko's killer tried to conceal his identity by using rubber gloves. They found a print in dirt on the outside of the vehicle, as well as a print in blood inside. What the killer didn't anticipate was leaving behind his own blood on the gear shift, as well as the black dress Martinko was wearing. However, police officials weren't able to identify Martinko's killer. They initially suspected Martinko's ex-boyfriend, but he was cleared after having his DNA tested. We're talking to friends and to her teachers, but so far we have no leads, Chief Ray Baker said in 1979. We're hoping somebody saw something or knows anything that will be of assistance to us. On December 19, 2018, nearly 40 years after Martinko was killed, Burns, who was 66, was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He was booked into the Lynn County Jail, where he was held on a $5 million cash-only bond. During an interrogation, Burns denied having anything to do with Martinko's murder. Yet, he was unable to explain how his DNA got inside her family's vehicle. He said, If I was there, I don't know. As far as I know, I was not there. Then he told the detective to test his DNA to see if it was a match. But they had already collected his DNA from a straw he left behind at a restaurant. After finding Martinko's killer, detectives tried to figure out a motive. They had already ruled out robbery, as $180 was found inside her purse, and she wasn't sexually assaulted. When the detective asked Burns why he killed Martinko, he said, We've got to prove I was there first. In a statement, Burns' family said, The charge against Jerry comes as a complete shock to us, and we are doing our best to carry on with our lives. During this difficult time, and as the justice system runs its course, we ask that our privacy be respected. The family of Jerry Burns would like to thank our friends and the Manchester community for the support we have received since Jerry's arrest. We would also like to extend our sympathy to the Martinko family. In February 2020, a jury deliberated for three hours before finding Burns, who reportedly showed no emotion during the trial, guilty of first-degree murder. That same year, in August, Burns was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. After his sentencing, he said, Somebody else killed Martinko that night. Burns then turned to his family and thanked them for supporting him.
First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks said, Mr. Burns will have the rest of his life to ask for forgiveness and beg for mercy on his soul. But if he doesn't, at least he won't get to block it out anymore. Because this moment has finally come. This is the moment of reckoning for him and the moment, long awaited, of resting peace for Michelle. He later filed an appeal after his attorneys contended that investigators violated the Constitution when they collected his DNA from the straw. Despite their claims, the appeal was denied. Burns is serving his sentence at Anamosa State Penitentiary in Anamosa, Iowa. Kevin Ray Underwood, behind bars for murdering a 10-year-old girl, Jamie Rose Bolin, inside his apartment. Kevin Ray Underwood is behind bars for murdering his 10-year-old neighbor, Jamie Rose Bolin, inside his apartment in Purcell, Oklahoma. At around 3.45 p.m. on April 14, 2006, the FBI stopped Underwood at a checkpoint near his home and questioned him about Jamie who had disappeared two days earlier. Underwood, who had just ended his shift at Grider's Discount Foods in Oklahoma City, spoke with agents for about an hour, and it was during that time that they became suspicious of him, according to NBC News. The then 26-year-old told detectives that he was stunned that they hadn't questioned him before. He said he was single, a loner, and had been hanging out outside for the past couple weeks, but he assured them that during that time Jamie went missing, he was at home on the computer chatting with a woman. Underwood then allowed them to search his home in an effort to rule him out as a suspect. He lived at the Purcell Park Apartments in Unit 115. While Agent Craig Overby was in Underwood's bedroom, he discovered a plastic tub inside the closet. There was a lid on top of it, but it was secured with duct tape. Underwood said he could look inside, but he warned him that he would only find comic books. After lifting the corner of the tub and looking inside, Overby said, There are no comic books in there. There are clothes. That's when Underwood told Overby to arrest him because Jamie's body was inside the tub, and he chopped her up. Underwood was immediately escorted outside the apartment where he was placed in handcuffs and transported to the Purcell Police Department. When Overby realized that he never saw a body, he went back inside Underwood's apartment, along with several officers, and opened the tub. There was a trash bag inside, and when he tore it open, he saw Jamie's face and her bicycle, which had been disassembled and her mug was found underneath Underwood's bed. In a videotaped confession, Underwood, who had fantasies involving human torture and cannibalism, told detectives that on April 12, 2006, Jamie returned home from school. She was a fifth-grade student at Purcell Intermediate School, and she was living with her dad at the same apartment complex as Underwood. Jamie went home and changed her clothes. Before leaving, she grabbed a mug and filled it with ice milk. She had it with her when she asked Underwood if she could go inside his apartment and pet his rat, Freya. He said yes. She left her bicycle outside and went inside Underwood's apartment, sat on the floor, and began petting Freya. A short while later, she and Underwood began watching an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. As they were talking about the cartoon show, Underwood retrieved a wooden cutting board and hit Jamie on the head, which caused her to scream. As she was crying and apologizing to Underwood over and over, he struck her several more times in an attempt to make her lose consciousness, but she didn't. He then put his hand over her mouth and nose and tried to suffocate her, but Jamie fought the entire time. The struggle led to multiple injuries to his legs, but he continued until he thought she was dead. 
as Jamie lay motionless on the floor. Underwood turned her over, and it was then that he noticed she was breathing. He put duct tape over her mouth and nose and dragged her body to the bedroom before going outside and bringing her bicycle inside the apartment. Underwood returned to the bedroom and undressed himself before removing Jamie's clothing. He was attempting to have sex with her because he said the killing aroused him. Due to the positioning of Jamie's body, he was unable to have sexual intercourse with her, but he did, however, perform a brief sexual act. Afterward, he moved her body to the bathroom, which he said was a struggle because of how heavy she was. Underwood wanted to quickly drain her blood before it coagulated, but by the time he got her to the bathtub, there were already blood clots. Using a decorative dagger, Underwood proceeded to saw off her head, but the viscous blood was clogging the drain. His plan was to have sex with her headless body, but when the process turned chaotic, he decided to stop what he was doing and clean up the mess, then get rid of Jamie's body. By that time, Jamie's father had returned home from work, and he was looking for her. When Underwood stepped outside, he asked him if he had seen her, and Underwood said he hadn't. He told authorities that he tried to show that he was concerned about Jamie so that her father wouldn't suspect him of anything. That's why he helped Jamie's family search for her until 8 p.m. When Underwood went back inside his apartment, he continued cleaning Jamie's blood. Then he put her in a plastic tub. He said it wasn't easy to do because Jamie's body was already stiff at that point. Using duct tape, Underwood was able to close the lid. An autopsy revealed that Jamie's cause of death was asphyxiation combined with direct blows to the head. After the interrogation, Underwood was arrested on first-degree murder charges. He was booked into the McLean County Jail, where he was held without bond. In February 2008, a jury deliberated for 23 minutes before returning with a guilty verdict. They also recommended the death penalty, which the judge later approved. Two months later, Underwood was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Underwood is currently on death row at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma. Arya Singh, behind bars for killing her newborn baby June, whose body was found floating in the ocean. Arya Singh is behind bars for the death of her newborn baby girl, known as Baby June, whose body was found off the Florida coast. On the afternoon of June 1, 2018, an off-duty firefighter was aboard a charter boat that he noticed the nude body of a baby floating face down about 75 to 100 feet off the Boynton Beach Inlet. Five months later, the Palm Beach County Medical Examiner ruled her death a homicide, as an autopsy revealed that she had been suffocated. The baby, whom authorities named Baby June because it was that month she was found, appeared to have been at a healthy weight when she was born, which was sometime between May 25th and May 28th, 2018. There were no signs of abuse. Before she was found, baby June had been in the water for at least six to eight hours. A drift study showed she was more than likely floated northward from Brower County. Palm Beach County Sheriff's Captain Steve Strabelli stated that it's possible she came off a boat carrying immigrants from Cuba. Haiti, or elsewhere, as the area was a frequent landing spot. The Sun Centennial reported that detectives believe that she may have been born in a medical facility because she had a needle prick on her foot and her umbilical cord had been cut. Police officials rummaged through countless birth records at hospitals in Broward, Palm Beach, and Martin Counties, but they didn't find anything on baby June's mother. Baby June's DNA was also submitted to the genealogical database for possible relatives, but they did not find a match.
Investigators did, however, believe they discovered baby June's ethnic background. They stated that she was half Central Asian and half African, which indicated that her parents were from the Caribbean. Strabelli said, Most often, a person with this 50-50 split would be found in areas like Barbados, Trinidad, or Jamaica, or from those areas originally. In a news conference, investigators stated that they were desperate to receive information from the public. They added that they needed to identify the parents to get to the bottom of what happened to baby June and how her body ended up in the Boynton Beach Inlet. Police officials later announced that baby June would not have a burial until she was identified. Her body was kept at the Palm Beach County Medical Examiner's Office. Four years later, in August 2022, baby June's father was identified through the new pilot program, and her mother, 29-year-old Ara Singh, was identified from a DNA sample that was found in a discarded coffee cup. When detectives spoke to baby June's father, he claimed that Singh told him that she was pregnant, but she said she had taken care of it. He went on to say that when he later brought up the pregnancy, she didn't want to talk about it. PBSO detective Brittany Christoffel said, We decided to just build this case against the mother without notifying her at all. In December 2022, Singh was arrested and charged with one count of first-degree premeditated murder. She was booked into the Palm Beach County Jail, where she was held without bond. During an interrogation, Singh claimed that she was unaware she was pregnant until she gave birth to baby June in a bathroom inside a hotel room. She went on to say that the following day she dumped baby June's body in the Boynton Beach Inlet, and she couldn't tell if the baby was alive or dead. The medical examiner asserted that baby June died of asphyxiation before her body was put into the water. When detectives searched Singh's cell phone, they discovered that she had searched Boynton Beach Inlet over 500 times on Google before and after her baby was found dead. An investigation revealed that at 8.41 a.m. on May 30, 2018, Singh searched cheap hotels near me, and hotels in Boca Raton, Delray Beach, and Boynton Beach were included in the search. According to GPS coordinates, Singh was at a lifeguard stand on North Ocean Boulevard in Ocean Ridge later that night. The following day, Singh searched Boynton Beach News today, 27 times, and sometime later, she searched Palm Beach County News 34 times. On January 17, 2023, Singh pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, and two days later, the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office dropped the charges, changing it to second-degree murder and abuse of a corpse. In a statement, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office said, Miss Singh went to a hotel room alone and gave birth to a child. As a result of her actions or inactions, the baby died. Miss Singh never called 911. She never sought medical treatment. She never asked for help for her child, and she never dropped the baby off at a fire station. As the child's mother, under the circumstances, she placed herself in. She was the only person who could save that baby's life. Instead, she disposed of her baby in the Boynton Inlet in the hopes no one would know what she had done. There must be a consequence for that. Singh pleaded guilty in August 2023 to a lesser charge of aggravated manslaughter. That same month, she was sentenced to 14 years in prison. She received credit for the 231 days she was incarcerated. When she is released, Singh will be on probation for 10 years. And that, dear listeners, is where I'm going to leave off from these True Crime Cases, Volume 7. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. 
If you were awake, I hope you've enjoyed this selection. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 